much too late. The children were already gone. Part 1. Nine Years in the Summer Country Chapter 1. The Angel in the Garden John rarely dreamed, and it was even more seldom that he could recall what he dreamed about. But as of late, he had had dreams every night and he remembered them all, because when he dreamed, he dreamed of giants. Massive continents of bone and sinew, creating their own topographies as they strode across the landscapes, giving little notice to the awed creatures watching from below. The giants were so great, it seemed they had both gravity and weightlessness, as if the next thundering step would suddenly launch them into space to join with the gods and titans among the constellations. Standing with the populace of his dream world, all of whom strangely seemed to be children, John watched in mute wonder as the giants strode past with geological slowness. Then, as in each of the dreams, one of the giants turned and looked down directly at John. Shifting its weight, it bent and reached for him with a hand the size of a barn as the children around him began shrieking. The train whistle was shrill in the afternoon air, startling John out of his troubled reverie. He stood and quickly scanned the crowd departing the train that had just come in from London. The station at Oxford was not large, but the afternoon schedules were always full of both comings and goings, and he didn't want to miss the person for whom he was waiting. He realized, with a rising thrill, that he was far more excited to see his old friend than he'd expected to be. They had, in point of fact, spent only a few weeks together a number of years before, but the events of those days were enough to make them closer than mere colleagues. And so, when the thin, nervous-looking man with the high forehead and round spectacles finally emerged from the train onto the platform, John rushed forward and greeted him like a brother. Charles, he exclaimed joyfully, I say, it's terribly good to see you. I'm very pleased to see you too, John, said Charles, clapping his friend on the back. It's odd. As I got closer and closer to Oxford, I kept feeling as if I was coming home. But it wasn't because of the place, rather because I knew I was going to be seeing you and Jack. Does that sound strange to you? Yes, replied John, chuckling, but in all the right ways. Come on, let me help you with your bags. As they loaded Charles's belongings into John's vehicle, Charles looked around nervously and leaned closer to his friend. I wanted to ask, he said in a conspiratorial whisper, do you, uh, do you, you know, have uh, it with you? Of course, said John pointing to a bundle of books and papers on the rear seat. It's there, in the middle somewhere. Charles's eyes widened in shock. Here? Out in the open? he exclaimed. Not locked away or anything? John, are you out of your mind? That's, that's... He lowered his voice again. That's the Imaginarium Geographica, the single most valuable book on Earth. Don't you think it's a bit, ah, uh, risky? Not at all, John said with a trace of smugness. Take a look at the lecture on top of the pile. 
Charles adjusted his spectacles and peered more closely at the document. It says, A proposal for syllabus reform as regards the study of ancient Icelandic, and the rest appear to be notes on courses in comparative philologies. He climbed into the seat next to John and gave his friend a puzzled look. Don't take this the wrong way, but how many people, even at Oxford, would care about such things? Precisely my thinking, said John as he started up the car. I have a hard enough time getting the undergraduates to pay any attention to Anglo-Saxon, much less Old Icelandic. What better protection for the geographer than to bury it amongst manuscripts that no one else will care about? It had been nine years to the day since John and Charles had met each other in London. Nine years since they and the companion they were going to see had gone on the most extraordinary expedition of their lives.